Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. ask you to stand with me, please, and we will read together from the Word of God. We're going to start reading at uh, chapter 3, verse 8 from the book of Genesis. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, at east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may be seated. So the title of the, the sermon this morning is "The Gracious Judge Seeks the Hiding Sinner." The gracious, gracious Judge seeks the hiding sinner. And we see that in God's response to Adam and Eve's disobedience, we see him as the just judge, but also I pray that you see him as the gracious judge. And of course, we can't help but think um, of this scene in Genesis of young children, how when they know they're about to get a consequence for disobedience, how one of their first reactions is often to run and hide. And we see that in our children, and, and we see it in ourselves. We maybe become 
more subtle in the ways that we hide. Maybe it's in front of a TV screen, maybe it's in our work or our hobby, but we also know that our temptation often when we are guilty is to try and hide. And you know, I think for many Christians, there's a view of God um, almost like the good cop and bad cop when we think about God. And we think that sometimes God in the Old Testament is a very harsh abusive, almost angry God who is just waiting for his people to slip up that he might punish them. And we think of sometimes we can be guilty of thinking that God in the Old Testament as full of vengeance and wrath. And then we think that Jesus in the New is really the more loving expression of God, that he is the one who maybe lets the adulteress get away with sin or he lets the dishonest tax collector get off with no punishment for his crimes. And we have this very unbalanced view of God. But as we consider God's response this morning to Adam and Eve and how he approaches them, um, I pray that you begin to see God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we will see five responses that God has towards their sin. And uh, I pray that as a result, we really get a glimpse of the graciousness, the kindness of God, and yes, also the justice of God. Again, this is, as we consider God's word, we must not forget that it is first and foremost a revelation of himself. This isn't just about humanity or Adam and Eve. This is the revelation of God himself to us. And so as we look at this passage, I know oftentimes for myself even, when you read of this account in Genesis or you hear it taught, a lot of times we put all the emphasis on Adam and Eve, right? We know that they run and hide and we could talk about how we are like that when we sin, that we try to cover our shame, we flee from God's presence, we start to blame one another and our relationships are damaged. And there is that definite part of this this passage, but what we often miss is God's response, what God does as a result of his people falling into sin. So I really want us to just look um, this morning and, and put the emphasis on God himself. How does he react and what does that reveal, us, reveal to us about his character? Who is this God? And so first of all, God's first response this morning we'll see is that he seeks out the guilty. He seeks out the guilty. And you see that it is not the man and the wife who come seeking God for forgiveness or for uh, reconciliation, but rather it is God himself who comes to the man and the woman. And we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago. Um, I think it is fascinating, though, when you begin to think about who God is, Jesus tells us in, in John 4.24 that God is spirit, right? And even in, in John 1.18, we're told that no man has seen God. And so when you have these moments in the Old Testament when God reveals himself in, in, a, in a physical form, that he comes and reveals himself to his people, you must ask the question, how do we balance that with the truth that God is spirit, that no one has seen God, we're told, in John 1.18. So 
how, how does that work? And it's, it's fascinating as you begin to understand the, the revealing of God's nature from the Old to the New Testament that we, have a, we are worshiping a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, as I understand, even these passages in the Old Testament, when we have God revealing himself to his people, coming to them and, and manifesting his presence in a form, walking with them, we have a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus himself, before becoming a man, would reveal himself to his people in, in form. We see this throughout Genesis and Judges lots of times. It is, you will see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the book of Judges comes. And when people encounter the angel of the Lord, they often fall down and worship because this is no mere angel. This is Christ pre-incarnate Christ coming to his people. And it's a beautiful study if, if you look at God revealing himself to his people. Even um, in Exodus 3, 2, when Moses encounters the burning bush, we're told the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses from the bush. Who is that? It's Christ himself coming to Moses. And Isaiah, and we've talked about this before too, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. God reveals his, his presence and manifests himself to, to Isaiah. And, and John tells us in John 12, 41, that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. And so we have a triune God working um, even here in the Old Testament. And so I... I I think there's no contradiction between a verse like John 1.18, no man has seen God, and Genesis where you have God coming and walking and fellowshipping. No one has seen the Father but the Son, but Jesus himself would come and manifest himself to his people. And uh, the theologians have a big fancy word for this in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany, a, the a theophany, God revealing himself, Christ coming and so that's a little bit of an aside, but we see here that God comes to Adam and Eve. And so he is, first of all, seeking them out in their sin. And of course, you think of Adam and Eve and, and you wonder, well, why, why are they trying to hide from God anyways? We know from the scriptures, and, and they must have known, at, at least in part, um, who this God is, the, his power, for he created them. He created the garden in which they were trying to hide. We know Psalm 139 tells us, says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And he goes down in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. We cannot escape the presence of God. The prophet Isaiah would say, and uh, sorry, the prophet Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 23, 23, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord God? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? 
And so you see the folly of trying to hide from this God. And yet God himself comes and seeks the sinners. An old preacher from the 20th century, A.W. Tozer, said that Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you most. And that should take our breath away. It's one thing for our children to love us and think that mom and dad are superheroes and can do no wrong, but they don't know our weaknesses. Of course, soon enough they start to see those, right? But, but, um, but God knows our very thoughts. He knows us on our worst days and yet seeks us out and comes to us. And that should be very comfort, comforting for us. John MacArthur, he said that there is only one successful way to flee from God, and that is to flee to God. There's no fleeing away from this God. There's no hiding in the bushes so that he might not find you. Your only hope is to turn and run to him and cast yourself upon his mercy and his grace. And so we ask the question, are you hiding from the Lord this morning? Are you convinced that if you dare come to him, you will only find wrath and condemnation? Are there sins that you dare not confess? James tells us to confess our sins to one another and be healed because as we step into the light, we are in a place to receive the mercy and kindness of God. Let us not follow the example of Adam and Eve who try to flee from the Lord, hoping that their sin will somehow be swept over or forgotten. God comes and he seeks them out. But you see, it's not just that God has the ability to sweep our sins under the rug and hide them, but he himself has made the payment to erase them through his son. And so as we come out of hiding, as we confess these sins to God that we hope no one knows about, we are told in 1 John 1, 9 that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you think that God doesn't care about your sin or that if you just ignore it long enough that it, that it won't matter in five, ten years. But God does not overlook sin. He comes directly and he will, as he did in Adam and Eve, either we will find our sin forgiven in Christ Jesus or we will find ourselves on judgment day with no forgiveness. And so may we come to him and see the God who seeks us out in his mercy and in his kindness. Maybe you have been sinned against. Maybe, uh, maybe your spouse has hurt you and, and, and you feel like there's no way I'm going to initiate forgiveness or there's no way I'm going to be the one to go to them and ask for us to work this out or maybe a brother or sister in Christ or a coworker you feel like has wronged you and you say there's no way I'm taking the first step in reconciling. But can you not see the mercy of God here? It was him who was sinned against, and yet he comes to them. He initiates. And may we follow in that example in our marriages and with our children and coworkers and with one another. Ask God for the strength to walk as he did, 
Jesus himself says in Luke 19.8, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In Romans 5.8, we read that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we see God coming and seeking Adam and Eve as his first response. And secondly, we see God calling Adam and Eve into the light. You have all these questions that God asks the man and his wife in uh, verse 8 and 9. We see right away God calls out to the man and he says to him, where are you? Now, of course, God is not actually misplaced Adam and Eve. It's not as though he's actually not sure where they are. We just saw from Psalm 139 that God is everywhere. His presence is everywhere. He knows where they are. So what is it that God is doing? He is calling them to account. He is causing them to see where they are, to see their own fallen condition before God. And we see God calling them into the light to acknowledge what they have done. And because if they will not even acknowledge their crimes, how can they be healed? We see that God asks Adam, who who told you that you were naked? Obviously, no one actually told Adam and Eve, right? There's no neighbors. No one's there. It's Adam and Eve. So it wasn't that their children pointed it out or their neighbors pointed it out. No one told Adam and Eve, but rather it was a result of their shame before God. And God is drawing them out in almost like a a pastoral, counselor kind of way. Very gracious. And I was just shocked by the kindness of God as he came to this man and woman. You would expect the God of the universe, the, the one without sin, to come maybe with a lightning bolt or a thunderstorm or fire and brimstone upon this couple, and yet he graciously comes and walks to them. And he draws them out of their place of hiding. It was reminiscent of me, uh, to me of uh, John 21, 15. You, you'll probably remember this passage. It's one of my favorite um, portions in the gospel, I guess, because I often identify with, with Peter's weakness and his failing faith oftentimes. And in John 21, 15, you have this famous account when Jesus comes to the shore. His disciples have returned back to fishing um, after their Messiah had died. And, and so they're out fishing again, forgetting about their call to be fishers of men. And we're told in John 15, uh, John 21, 15, that Jesus comes and he makes breakfast for them on the shore. And then he draws Peter aside and he, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Then feed my lambs. And again, he asks them, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? What is Jesus doing? He is drawing Peter out of his previous confession a few nights before that he denied the Lord three times and Jesus graciously, tenderly comes to him and he brings Peter to a place of not only realizing his own guilt, but also restoring him. And it is almost the same as as Christ himself, as God would come to the man and woman and draw them out of their hiding and seek to restore them and call them into the light. And I remember talking with a friend um, 
Sometimes in, in Grand Prairie, we try to go out together and just pass out some gospel tracts or engage people um, in conversation about the gospel. And one of the most common responses people give you is, oh, you know, uh, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, no thanks, I'm good. And people don't realize they're actually not good. And so it's as God comes to Adam and Eve, who might have said, oh, it's okay, God, we're good. We got some leaves, found some nice trees over here, everything's okay. Um, no, God is drawing them to a place to realize that it's not okay. You have desperately sinned against me. You are in a dangerous place. And so God not only seeks them, but God calls them into the light. And we do this with either maybe a, a children. You hear them say a hateful word to uh, a sibling, and what do you do? What did you just say? We don't need to know what they just said. We heard what they said. Why do we ask that question? We want them to realize. We want them to hear it. We want them to understand what they have just said so they can begin to realize why it's wrong. Or if they hit their brother, um, sometimes you're not sure what happened and you're asking sincerely, but other times you see what they did and you're like, what did you just do? And you ask them these questions to draw them out so they begin to reflect and say, oh, yeah, that, that's not appropriate uh, behavior, is it, to hit my brother? Maybe even at work, you've, you've been, uh, I know for myself, um, I've had a boss come and say, uh, you know, maybe it's a piece of trim put on and it, it's not quite right, and they just ask the question, so what happened here? Um, and it's pretty obvious what happened, you know, it's like, that's a mess, <laughs> what did you do? But they ask the question so that your mind begins to engage and like, oh yeah, that wasn't right, was it? Or maybe you missed a passing on some information, and your boss comes and says, so um, what about that, that uh, information about whatever it might be? What, what happened with that? And they're asking to draw out. And so God asks these questions not for his own information, but in order to draw the man and his wife into a place of realizing what they have done. And of course, God himself knows and as we consider God's response this morning, remember we're talking about a God who is without sin. He is perfect. He is righteous. He, he is the one of whom the fiery angels, the seraphim, say over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And so in many ways we should be shocked. What is he doing coming to these guilty sinners and showing such kindness? Where is the wrath? Where is the justice? How is he even able to do this? That should be the thing that puzzles us. And so oftentimes we look at our lives and we're, we're more shocked by the difficult things that we face than the goodness that we experience, are we not? We expect goodness from God. We expect everything to go well. And when something starts to go wrong, we're like, God, where are you? God, what have you done? But it should really be the opposite. God, you are holy. Why have I experienced anything good in this life? I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. How are you, a holy God, dealing so kindly with me? That should be what shocks us, even as we look at his response to Adam and Eve. And so not only does God seek them, but he draws them out and we see that as he talks to the man and the wife, of course, their response is, is often what we identify with. Blame passing, 
so much that Adam himself would actually blame God, ultimately, that woman who you gave me, right? He's blaming God for his own sin and failing to take responsibility for what he has done. And as God turns to the woman and says, what have you done? She also turns and says, well, it's the serpent's fault. He deceived me. And so we see their selfish response. And yet God continues to pursue. And the third response I want you to see of God's this morning And we won't go through this in detail when looking at the curse. Um, I want to go through that a bit more slowly. Um, But God punishes the guilty. God punishes the guilty. And you know that even as we discipline, either as a church, as we try to address sin in one another and we try to, to discipline or with our children, It is an act of love. We know this even from the scriptures that Hebrews 12, 11 12 tells us that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Proverbs 13 would use such strong language, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. God must judge the guilty. He must punish sin. And we see that he does here in the garden. He punishes each party involved. Ezekiel 30 verse 3 says, For the day is near. The Lord, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. God is a God who will punish the guilty. And in many ways, we have here in the garden a foreshadowing of what is to come. He does not punish them ultimately unto condemnation, but rather he places this curse upon them as a continual reminder, sin has consequences. God is just. God will not overlook our sin. And we experience these same things even as you as Many farmers here are struggling to to hopefully get crops off and you battle disease in the crops and, and storms and weather. This is all a byproduct of this moment, God's punishment upon sin. And so it is both, I think, an act of love of God not letting us think for a moment that sin is not a big deal, but also a reminder that there is a greater judgment coming. And so as we experience as a, as a people, as humanity, storms and, and tsunamis and war, all of these things serve as a continual reminder, sin is serious. And we may not, maybe not forget that God is indeed a God who is just. Just as God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, whom he warned, if you do not repent, judgment will come. God did not spare Noah's generation for their unbelief and their wickedness, but rather they were swept away in the flood. Even as you read the accounts of Israel and their disobedience, sometimes we're told like in Numbers 25, 9, 24,000 people died at once as God judges them for their turning their hearts to pagan gods. God is a just God. 
And it's interesting, as, um, as John Carson pointed out, the first doctrine that is denied in the Bible is the doctrine of judgment. What did the serpent say? God will not surely, you will not surely die. What is the serpent doing? He's undermining God's warning to the man and woman of judgment if they disobey. God's judgment is the first thing that is brought into question. And so when you run into people who want to erase the reality of hell, erase the reality of God's wrath, it is the same voice that the serpent said to the man and woman, don't worry about it. God's surely going to let you off the hook. Don't worry. Don't worry about your sin. Don't take it too seriously. Don't worry about the day of the Lord, right? And, and we're going to, I think, encounter this more and more. But I believe that God's wrath is real. Hell is real. It is eternal. And either our sin and our guilt will be paid for at the cross of Calvary where the eternal Son died, or our sin will be poured out upon us forever and ever because God punishes the guilty. And so we don't need to live in fear, but rather run to Christ who has satisfied his wrath for all who believe. And I'll just say these last, one, last two really quickly and uh, then we will close because we've talked about the fourth response already and it is beautiful. I know we could take each of these and, and, and spend an hour on them, but um, you see what God does in verse 21. His response is not only does he judge the guilty, but he clothes the sinners in verse 21, it told, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What is that? But a picture of God's mercy. Remember, this was written to the people of Israel who they, they knew all about animal sacrifice. Year after year, thousands of animals were slaughtered as a way of reminding them that their sin must be atoned for. And as they read this first animal that was slaughtered, because we're told the garments of skin, so we can assume there was an animal that was killed to make these clothes for Adam and Eve, and what a foreshadow of Christ himself, who would be our covering, who would give his life for us. And God clothes the guilty. He clothes the sinners, as part of his response. So as to say, your shame does need to be covered. You need a continual reminder that you are sinful now. Which is why nudity is wrong. Pornography is wrong, right? We, we wear clothes when we go to church. As much as I have to argue with my children sometimes that you must wear clothes when we go outside. This is why we are a people who have fallen, and so we are covered. And it is a reminder to us, not only of God's goodness, but of our need to find him. And in Revelation 3.17, I love this passage. I'll just read part of it. Um, I know we're about out of time. Revelation 3.17, you have Jesus writing to a, one of the seven churches, and he tells them, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Christ comes to his church and says, listen, you may feel self-sufficient. You may feel like you've got this under control. You may feel like, well, in the end, my good deeds will just outweigh my bad and everything will be okay. And Jesus says, no, you need to realize your condition. You need to realize your desperate need for recovering. Come to me, Jesus says. Buy gold refined by fire. I will give you the white, rich garments that you can clothe yourself and be covered, which, of course, is Christ's own righteousness. Let us not be foolish and think that we will have tomorrow. Flee to Christ. Stand in the forgiveness of his grace. Turn from your sin. Turn from your evil, knowing that God will judge and either your sin will be, be covered by Christ, paid for by Christ, or you yourself will face his wrath. And so God clothes the sinner. And then lastly, we will close, close with this. And, and this last section can be a bit confusing. And from verse 20, we're going to going to jump over the, the curse there, but verse 20, you look at it like, what is going on? So God closed them, but then he says, they've become like one of us, knowing good and evil. They have, they have, they're no longer innocent. They're no longer pure as I first made them. Now they, they must be cast out of the garden. Why must they be cast out of the garden? We're told in verse 22, the reason God removes them is he says, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God not only covers them, but his final fifth response is to prevent them from living forever. Now, Initially, that may be like, why would he want to do that? Why, why wouldn't he allow them to live forever? Why, why is God concerned about this? And the more that I have thought of this and studied it, the more I begin to realize this is another expression of God's grace, his kindness. Why? As you go on in the book of Genesis, you begin to realize the effects of sin upon humanity. In the next chapter, their first children, the, there's two sons, one will kill the other. In six chapters, things are so bad, God has to completely erase everyone from the face of the globe except for Noah and his family. Sin has so permeated this world that it is utterly chaotic and dangerous and dark. And God looks at that and he says, you know what? For them to abide forever in this condition would be hell on earth. Instead, God says, no, I will number their days 
And I will set in motion a plan of redemption that they will again enter into paradise. Humanity will not be lost to an endless cycle of sin and destruction. I will take them away from this means of eternal life, this tree of life. I will remove them from it. I will cut them off, knowing that that's the first place Adam and Eve would have went, right? If you have just sinned and you know the the, the promise was death, first place you're going is to the tree of life, to try and beat this consequence, right? It would be like someone who's able to give their own prescription. That's where they're going to go, and they're going to overdose. They're going to, they're going to destroy themselves and put humanity in this place of never-ending destruction and defeat. And from this perspective... This is a gracious thing. Why? Because as God prepares to send forth His Son to deliver us, to give us a resurrection, we have a hope of one day being without sin, in being in bodies that no no disease are not touched by sickness. This hope is now ours because God removed them from the garden and drove them out and put the angel there so they could not enter and just in closing um, sometimes I know that I'm young and as I look out over this congregation and pray for you I know if the Lord allows me to live to a ripe old age chances are I will stand beside most of your graves and that terrifies me I don't want to get that phone call I don't want to to hurt. I don't want to, to mourn the loss of loved ones. We don't enjoy that, right? We, we, you experienced that this morning. And it's like, God, why does this have to hurt? And, and it terrifies me to think as a young man, if, if God allows me to live, that, that I'll, I'll be there at many of your funerals, Lord willing. And yet, you know, the only way to keep that reality from crippling us is to realize what Christ has done. Yes, death is painful and it's unnatural, but it is another expression of God's mercy because we fix our gaze upon Christ who was not kept in the grave, who rose from the dead, and we have the hope of the resurrection of walking with our loved ones who have looked upon Christ and seeing them in the splendor of their glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And I love the picture even at the end in Revelation. What do you see in the end? As John looks at this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, and he sees in, in, uh, in, in chapter 22, He says, then the angel showed me the river of water, uh, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. What is there? What is there? It says, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for their Lord the 
for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And I know that the pain that we feel is hard and it hurts and we struggle and we battle our sin and we find ourselves in the forest of sin and, and it's day after day, but we press on, as Paul said, not destroyed, looking to Christ, our Savior, knowing we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. And so I pray that you see through this God's graciousness, his goodness, the beauty of his heart. Do not flee from him. It only ends in destruction for those who flee. Flee to God, for he cares for you. Let us pray, and I'll ask Bosmas to come back. Lord God, we are um, a needy people, and you are a great God. Lord, I, I know that we often can be led astray as we think about you, Father, that we feel that you are uncaring or distant. But Lord, I pray as we see you and your word, that our hearts are drawn to you, Father. We know it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Would that be the case this morning, Lord? Would we see you as the loving Father looking to the horizon for his son that has left? He waits day after day. And his joy when the son comes over the hill, broken and repentant, needy, desperate and poor, God, that we would cast ourselves upon you this morning. And Lord, that your spirit would comfort hurting hearts. Lord, that you would expose us in our sin, that we might stand and be healed by you, Lord Jesus. That by your wounds, we would experience forgiveness, newness, peace, joy, and that our hearts would long all the more for that glorious day when faith becomes sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.